Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Nosithe Zuma and Tabisolo Hoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa announces that the special COVID-19 grant will be extended further by three months. One of Zambia's aggressive opposition leaders, also known for being fearless, jailed by a Zambian court on charges of forgery and providing false documents to a public officer. And in economics news, Zimbabwe's finance minister has promised enough funding for anti-graft bodies such as the Zimbabwe Anti-Corruption Commission in his 2021 budget. But first up, the news with Nosile Zuma. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. South Africa has recorded 1,770 new coronavirus cases, putting the cumulative number at 698,184. The number of recoveries now stands at 628,301. The health department says 158 more COVID-19-related deaths have been recorded. This puts the national death toll at 18,309. Meanwhile, new data shows that rising rates of chronic disease have worsened the coronavirus pandemic. The global burden of diseases studied shows that there is a growing prevalence of chronic health conditions like diabetes and heart disease. The BBC's Naomi Grimley reports. This report does not make good reading for a world in the grip of a serious virus, with obesity, diabetes and cardiovascular disease all adding to our risk factors if we contract COVID-19. The authors warned that low- and middle-income countries are not well-equipped to address the growing disease burden caused by non-communicable diseases. In Uzbekistan, for example, diabetes has gone from being the 21st highest cause of death to the 5th highest. Legal Aid South Africa says there has been a high demand for its services by people considering divorce during the lockdown period. It says demand has been equally high for legal advice on other family-related matters like domestic violence and maintenance matters. Despite the entity seeing a sharp decline in the number of calls it often received, the majority of the cases it received were family-related. Legal Aid's head of office in Blomfontein, the Feasted Province, Machini Mutlou. These are matters such as divorce, uh, maintenance matters, domestic violence matters, guardianship matters, access to contact. Those are family law-related matters that we really had a high number of demands. And uh, we also had um, eviction matters, which also, you know, ranging from dispute on lease agreement to client claiming eviction against unlawful occupiers The Nigerian military has issued a warning to hundreds of protesters who have taken to the streets for several days demanding the reform of the police services. The government said it would bow to the demands of Nigerians protesting police abuses, but protesters vowed to keep the pressure on. With protests breaking out across Nigeria, the country's president said on Monday he would crack down on rogue police officers accused of brutalizing citizens. The BBC's Owaka reports. The statement from the Nigerian army has been received as a veiled threat by protesters who have taken to the streets to call for police reform. The Nigerian army said it remains resolute to the peace and stability of the nation. There have been reports of soldiers supporting police efforts in the capital Abuja earlier this week. Hundreds of NSAS protesters across the country say they will remain on the streets until the government end police abuse. The government has announced a raft of measures including dissolving the dreaded police unit, Special Anti-Robbery Squad, known as SARS, 
as well as agreeing to free those arrested during the protests. The two main challengers to Ivory Coast President Alessandro Tara on Thursday said they will boycott the October 31st presidential election. They are calling on their supporters to prevent the vote from going forward. The move by the two in which Otara is seeking a third term, despite opposition claims that doing so violates the constitution. Protests against Otara's candidacy in August led to more than a dozen deaths and stoked fears of a new political crisis. Former President Lauren Gbagbo's refusal to concede defeat to Otara after the 2010 election sparked a brief civil war that killed 3,000 people. And the first flight from New Zealand to Australia under a new so-called travel bubble has landed. About 90% of the tickets were sold, with 300 or so passengers not having to quarantine on arrival. The BBC Shamia Khalil reports. The travel bubble allows arrivals into New South Wales and the Northern Territory. Australian officials said they hoped this could expand to other states in the near future. However, the changes will not allow Australians to travel to New Zealand. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said it was still unsafe to open the borders. Under the current rules, anyone returning to New Zealand will be required to stay in hotel quarantine. The partial opening of international travel is seen as a small but significant step for Australia. Since March, the country's borders have been closed to everyone except citizens, residents and those with exemptions. Your sports news with Figi Lilimwati. In our sports update this hour, I'm Figile Lingwadi. We're kicking off with football news. Defending champions, Supersport United, face a tough road trip to Limpopo province for their MTN 8 quarterfinal against top flight new boys, Chakuma Chama Zimandila, TTM on Saturday afternoon. United coach Kaitano Dembu is wary of the unknown threat of the Limpopo club as he shares his team's preparations for the new campaign. There's been a lot of changes, you know, in terms of, you know, playing personnel. A lot of, you know, players have left, like the two Sopalas, uh, James Keane. All those players have left and uh, we've seen the emergence of yeah, younger players, you know, coming into the team. And the same thing as well this past season where we've got Obri Modiba leaving and as well as uh, uh, Dean Femen and Tapo Myamani. And they've all gone and we, 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 we're still building, we're still going forward. And that's what I always try and focus on. I, I, I think I don't want to look too way ahead. I just want to make sure that we, 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 we're building the blocks and we are bringing in you know, uh, players who are capable to take us to where we want to go. Three-time champion Rodney Dubach continued to defy the ravages of time as he overcame Northwest University student Deval van Niekerk in a titanic quarterfinal battle in the Growth Point SA National Squash Tournament at Brooklyn Mall in Pretoria. The Western Province star who first played in the SA Nationals final in 1994 when he was runner-up held off a terrific fight back from his 23-year-old opponent, edging home 11-9 to in the fifth after 45 minutes. The 48-year-old Dubach, who was champion in 1999, 2003 and 2009, knows the time is running out, but said he would love to make it four titles because that is not a very big club. He will now face Northern's player, Ruan Olifir, who advanced with a comfortable three-love win over Mikhail Lombard of Western Province. And finally, Britain's Tyrell Hatton coming off. A European tour victory last weekend at Wentworth fired a 7 under par 65 on Thursday to grab a one-stroke lead in the clubhouse at the USPGA CJ Cup at Shadow Creek. A day after his 29th birthday, the Englishman had three birdies and an eagle in his first five holes, finishing one ahead of American Russell Henley and top two Spain's John Ram and American Tyler Duncan despite the trip over from England. That's the Sport News this hour.
It's 7.10 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Zambians continue voicing reactions over the jailing of opposition leader Chishimba Kambwiri for two years for forgery and altering false documents. While many opposition leaders believe the sentence is politically motivated, at least one political leader is happy that justice has been served. Hilda Akekela reports. National Democratic Congress Party, NDC Vice President Joseph Akafumba, has described the arrest and charge of his president as persecution from the ruling Patriotic Front Party using government institutions. He said the arrest of the opposition leader is a project for the ruling Patriotic Front leadership that stands to benefit from its outcome and assured the members that he is not shaken and remains the party leader. Mr. Akafumba, who himself is a lawyer, wondered at the speed the trial magistrate delivered his judgment, saying the whole process indicates the magistrate had scores to settle with Dr. Kambwili. Even if our president is in incarceration now, he is still our president and remains our president. We did conduct a search at court, and we found that in the last 10 years, Musamba having been a magistrate, this is the fastest judgment that he has delivered in two weeks. I have all along tried to get CK where they have put him, to weaken him, to weaken his spirit. But I can assure the nation that the man is not broken and is as strong as ever. The NDC is the alliance partner to the main opposition United Party for National Development and Kambwili was being publicly proposed for presidential running mate to the UPND leader Hakainde Hichilema in the 2021 general elections. In his reaction, Hichilema said the sentencing of Kambwili is a move to weaken the opposition. country that is supposed to offer so much to its people but it's taking away even the little that the citizens have. Taking away our fundamental rights, liberties, freedoms. CK's situation must never be viewed as a case of criminality. It should rightly be viewed as a case of taking away a citizen's rights. And the National Restoration Party President Stephen Nyerenda says amid massive corruption, the judiciary is being used to fight political battles for the patriotic front, leaving main issues that are affecting Zambians. Mr. Nyerenda states that in as much as Kambuli was found guilty, his case has raised suspicions of being a move to knock out the opposition leader politically. There are people who are committing crimes who are in the government today, they are left scot-free. These people have made lots of damage to our economy, lots of damage to our people. People are dying and so on. But this crime that has been committed by our comrade, CK, I do not think is a crime that has literally disadvantaged our economy. Reacting to the news, Socialist Party leader Fred Membe said he does not believe Kamwili received a fair trial because the magistrate failed to recuse himself even after Kamwili raised serious allegations against him. He said holding fair trials and passing credible judgments does not only protect suspects and defendants, but also makes Zambia a safer and stronger nation. Every person accused of a crime should have a fair trial, should have their guilt or innocence determined by a fair and effective legal process. But it's not just about protecting suspects and defendants. It, is, it also makes our nation safer and stronger. The right to a fair trial has long been recognized by, international, by the international community as a basic human right. But Opposition Economic and Equity Party President Chirufia Tayali says the conviction is timely because Kambwili abused his powers when he served in government he says the case has nothing to do with politics or political persecution, but purely criminal act that has been dealt with fairly. Mr. Tayali, 
who has appointed himself a crusader to stamp out corruption, says he will leave no stone unturned to root out corrupt leaders, adding that checks and balances should be extended to those that aspire to get into power so as to ensure that the country does not vote for the wrong people. It's about holding a, a person who was in leadership and abused power. He was in power and he abused his power and he has paid for it. And I'm happy for it because wrongdoers must be held accountable. Wrongdoers must pay for the wrong things that they do. On Wednesday, the Lusaka Principal Resident Magistrate David Simusamba found Kambiri guilty of forgery and altering false documents. The offenses relate to the registration of his company, Mwamona Engineering and Technical Services. The complainant in the matter was Equity and Economic Party leader Chirofia Tayali. Tuesday next week has been set for appeal hearings and bail applications. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingstone in Zambia, I am Hilda Kekerwa. The South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says government's economic recovery plan is centered on reforming the economy and creating 800,000 job opportunities in the immediate term. He says the economic consequences of a surge in COVID-19 infections would have been far worse than the economic impact of the lockdown. The president was addressing a joint sitting of parliament where he unveiled South Africa's economic recovery plan after COVID-19 lockdowns. Naledin Mobo reports. President Cyril Ramaphosa says 300,000 job opportunities will be made available for young people as education assistants at schools throughout the country as part of government's job-led recovery plan. He says government has committed 100 billion rand over the next three years to create jobs through public and social employment. The interventions outlined in this plan will, one, achieve efficient secure and reliable energy supply within two years. They will also create and support over 800,000 work opportunities in the immediate term to respond to job losses. The employment stimulus includes direct support for livelihoods and the protection of jobs in vulnerable sectors. Ramaphosa has announced that the special COVID-19 grant will be extended further by three months. And also having realized that pending the full implementation of these measures that we are announcing, there will be a gap of some three months where we need to give support to our people to continue the support that was given six months ago to make it nine months. The stretched nature of our financial resources does make it difficult and impossible to extend it beyond the further three months. Ramaphosa says government will unlock more than one trillion rand in infrastructure investments over the next four years. He says the infrastructure build programs will focus on social infrastructure such as schools, water, sanitation and housing. The infrastructure fund will provide 100 billion rand in catalytic finance over the next decade, leveraging as much as one trillion rand a new investment for strategic infrastructure projects. Several projects are already, have already started and they are already in construction. These include human settlements projects such as Matlosana N2 in Northwest, Lufureng in Gauteng, Greater Konobia in KZN and Vista Park in the Free State. Ramaphosa has assured the nation that decisive action will be taken to prevent, detect and act against COVID-related corruption. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people and our economy to a situation that is more normal that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. 
Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, Cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. Bringing you your latest news on the novel coronavirus disease COVID-19. For Channel Africa, I'm Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Make sure you and people around you follow good respiratory hygiene. This means covering your mouth and nose with your bent elbow and tissue when you cough and sneeze. Then dispose the used tissue immediately. It's 7.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Today marks World Food Day, one of the most celebrated days of the UN calendar, observed annually on the 16th of October. The day serves as an opportunity to show appreciation for the world's food heroes. Here's a public service announcement for the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, right across the globe, farmers and many others along the value chain have worked tirelessly to bring food from the farm to the table. Together, let's celebrate our food heroes. Let's stop food waste, buy local and seasonal, and live sustainably. More at www.fao.org. A Zimbabwean orphan who survived abuse during her childhood has conquered fate and is now helping fellow orphans and marginalized citizens discover their agricultural potential. Chido Govera founded Future of Hope, through which she has reached out to young orphans teaching them life survival skills. It's through her mushroom projects in various districts across the country that have seen dreams come true, even without formal education. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. Migration has been taking place for decades, voluntarily or forced to become refugees after fleeing wars, famine and natural disasters. Economic-induced brain drain is one of the major problems African nations face every day and Zimbabwe could be experiencing both requiring strong migration policies. While Zimbabwe has been losing its own citizens to other countries in the region and beyond, the country has also been hosting thousands of foreigners after migrating from famine and war in their countries. In this era of unprecedented mobility, the need to facilitate orderly, safe, regular and responsible migration is becoming essential, hence Zimbabwe has offered to go for self-assessment. It has been recognized this mobility can help highlight positive contributions of migrants to growth and development. However, Zimbabwe is lagging in so many areas regarding the migration policies. Tawanda Matanda from the International Organization of Migration, IOM, said. The findings of the report uh, concluded that Zimbabwe has not ratified the International Convention on the Protection of Migrant Rights and Workers and Members of Their Family. The convention relating to the status of refugees was ratified in 1981. The International uh, Labour Organization uh, conventions, including the 1949 uh, convention, was not ratified. Whilst the uh, UN Convention relating to the status of stateless persons has also not been ratified. But we also note that in the report it does highlight that Zimbabwe acceded to the Convention to the status of stateless persons uh, in December 1998. In terms of areas that need some development, the report found that there is some access to not all migrants have access to some basic services, basic health services. Only permanent residents have equal access to education as citizens. Uh, not all citizens living abroad also have the right to vote. Matanda edit. Uh, the report found that the national contingency plans 
uh, do not include migrants in terms of addressing displacement impacts of disaster. Moreover, in terms of addressing the adverse impacts of climate-related migratory movements, the current climate change policies do not include specific contributions or address specific issues related to the migratory process. Though it is noted in the report, in the draft national migration policy, that there is a section that actually addresses this particular uh, important. In terms of the inclusion of migrants in instances where they do return, the report found that there is insufficient inclusion of migrants when they do reintegrate within the national uh, development policies that are existing in the country right now. While Zimbabwe could be lagging behind in most areas, certain legal processes have been followed, Matanda said. In terms of ensuring that migration takes place in a safe, orderly and dignified manner, we found that the report found that there are strong formal procedures for regulating migration, including the Immigration Act, as well as uh, the, the schedules, the related schedules. In terms of uh, policy and legal frameworks for addressing trafficking, combating trafficking as well as labor exploitation. Zimbabwe has fairly well-developed uh, frameworks uh, that support uh, measures to combat uh, this particular uh, issue. According to IOM, the assessment of the Migration Governance Indicators, MGI, will help Zimbabwe better achieve certain sustainable development goals, SDGs, and economic growth, alloys. Matongo, Director of Police and Research in the Ministry of Home Affairs, said. The MGI assists countries in developing comprehensive migration strategies. And for those who have been in this uh, process, they will be aware that what we are trying to come up with are strategies that will improve, once adopted by government, how we manage migration in Zimbabwe. So this is why uh, MGI is important and in 2019 an indication was made to the IOM that our country would like an assessment to be made and this is precisely why we are here today. We are here to look at the results of that assessment. In Harare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Mchema. Schools in Kenya are only partially reopening now after a seven-month closure. While many children have been home with their parents in a small village in Kenya, a 71-year-old retired teacher and girl child rights activist had to shelter at least 24 children, among them 22 girls, who feared if they returned home they would either be circumcised or married off. Sarah Kimani reports in Kenya. We are just in time for an impromptu assembly at the Nanana Winbridge Grace Rescue School in Kenya's Kajado County. We are here to meet 71-year-old veteran teacher and educational expert Priscilla Nangurai. This is why, when the Kenyan government ordered all schools closed in March this year to control the spread of COVID-19, she quickly realized she could not completely shut her doors. 24 pupils had nowhere to go. We only remained with the girls who refused to go home. You know, we don't allow the girls to go home until they say yes, even after reconciliation. So there are those who ran from FGM, and they said this time they are going to take you know advantage of this time so they decide not to go well, we have high school girls and we have uh, primary girls and we have two boys how many are they in total the girls are 22 and then two boys so 24. her institution which started off as a school soon after she'd retired has since turned into a shelter for girls running away from traditional harmful practices in their communities including female circumcision also known as fgm and forced marriages we have had girls who have gone back home and the day you arrive if you rent from fgm they do it the day you you arrive and so for six months they have spent their time here alternating between formal learning, co-curricular activities, and life skills. The rescue center turning out to be a shelter from their homes, which are no longer hospitable. For those who have succeeded, uh, 
it's those who stayed on and struggled and made it and went home with something, with a certificate, uh, maybe with a job, because there are those who go to college while they are here. So even as she happily chats with those who remain behind, her mind is on those that the prolonged closure as a result of COVID-19 has claimed. Unfortunately, one was circumcised, but she's not rescued. She's just, the, the, you know, the usual. Um, and I have word that uh, from one area, Lodokilani, three of them are pregnant and they're in class eight. And uh, I'm afraid, I'm really afraid. Uh, so I'm waiting today to see who is coming and who is not coming. For more than 40 years, she has advocated for the education of the girl child. Last year, Kenya announced a 2022 target to end female circumcision. But I have my doubts. I'm sorry to say, FGM is too deep. It is really deep. So I, I kept thinking uh, religion and education will end all this, but it's not. Because in 2018, a professor in the government from Korea circumcised his daughter. Sometimes you feel you are fighting a losing battle. But uh, it, it's not good to give up. You just continue and pray and hope that uh, what you are doing will help thousands of girls. Watching those she rescued this time, it is clear the battle is not lost. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. It's 7.31 Central African time and our headlines up next with Nosile Zuma. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. South Africa has recorded 1,770 new coronavirus cases, putting the cumulative number at 698,184. Legal Aid South Africa says there has been a high demand for its services by people considering divorce during the lockdown period. And more European countries are tightening restrictions to combat a surge in coronavirus infections. I'll be back with your full bulletin at 8. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Sile. 20 shacks destroyed in five minutes. That's how quickly fires can spread in informal settlements. This is one of the major results of the world's largest informal settlement fire experiment, consisting of 20 homes. The experiment was conducted by the Fire Engineering Research Unit at South Africa's Stellenbosch University, Fire Sun, in collaboration with the Western Cape Disaster Management, Fire and Rescue Services, and the Breda Valley Municipality Fire Department, who hosted the experiment and provided significant assistance to the overall research efforts. Professor Richard Walls from Fire Sun explains. The study was conducted on 20 large, well, 20 full-scale dwellings. We ignited four to create a fire line, so a continuous fire that would be spreading, which you'd see in a big fire incident. And then we monitored the fire, tracked it through, measured temperatures and heat fluxes and wind and all these sorts of things. And then within about five minutes, all 20 dwellings were, were alight. And then give, after about 16, 18 minutes, the, there was virtually nothing left standing. And so it just highlighted the rapid rate at which the fires can move through these sort of very permeable, very easily ignitable dwellings that are spaced closely together. Mm-hmm. And um, what actually motivated you to want to uh, discover the issue with the shacks? Because we've seen how in many parts of the country, many shacks burn, especially during the winter season. And it becomes the, the fires are devastating for the community that live in those areas. Correct. This uh, informal settlement fire safety and, and large fires are a massive incident. We've got at least 14 fires a day in the country, and that's what's reported. So the real numbers are probably much higher than that because of many incidents not being reported. Now, a lot of interventions are being developed, whether it's suppression products or alarms or paints or boards or throwing products and all sorts of things. And 
we don't have real information to evaluate how do they need to perform, what do they need to stop, what do they need to prevent so that we can see where should we invest our money and also when we are going to adjust layouts of an area or try consider will a road stop fire spread or will boards or will this or that the other will reblocking help we have very little data to evaluate it against so we conducted this experiment just to see how do homes ignite what happens how far can the fire jump how you know what is the first point of ignition and from this we can better evaluate different intervention systems etc to pro- try at least find what would give us the best bang for our buck in terms of interventions and and safety and in terms of interventions and safety what are you looking for at, at this point in time which direction are you are you looking at firstly there's no easy solution to informal settlement fire safety it's not that one device intervention system etc is ever going to solve the problem there are a lot of issues and problems all in one place that all have to be addressed so when we really want to make a big difference it's actually going to have to be a holistic approach we're going to have to consider multiple factors so firstly we've got to get our risk of ignition down and that can be through electrification that can be through better um, or safer cooking uh, lighting etc systems but also realizing even if we provide electrification people can have overloaded plugs etc so all those sorts of um, issues considering candles and the likes then we need to make sure that when a fire breaks out it can't spread too fast that there are active systems to either stop it so firstly the community is key with the rate the fire spread the, the world's fastest fire truck's not going to get there in time to save the first few dwellings so it's to equip the community and each community this will look different maybe it's buckets maybe it's access to local water infrastructure um, maybe it's you know thick blankets just to, to douse things within their home whatever it is to try equip the community for small fires then to enable the fire department to get there fast through the community knowing what number to dial the community knowing which number to dial is key because often they dial one or triple one or, or wrong numbers and then it takes an extra five ten twenty minutes for the fire department to get there then when the fire department does get there so that there aren't low line cables they can drive through the settlement and access the way they don't get bricks and rocks and things thrown at them because of various issues and so the, the community assists the fire department to access it to set up there is water infrastructure available hydrants etc and then after that when it comes to reducing spread we need to look at passive protection or also compartmentation how do we stop homes from igniting now unfortunately a lot of the, the products even if you have a high quality paint or board or the likes the construction of homes can often mean that those products are ineffective because if for any homes and dwellings the fire will find those ho- find those holes and slip through and ignite etc so during the fire often it's just pulling your curtains away from the windows and trying to make sure you don't have newspaper stuck in, stuck into holes that can ignite often plugging the holes that flames can slip through may be more important than for instance put a, a coating on on the side and then trying to get distance between homes trying to make sure that there isn't lots of combustible o- items stacked around homes all these things work together so you can see it's not an easy quick solution multiple things need to be done on multiple levels to reduce the probability without necessarily saying now we have a totally fire safe area Mm-hmm. And and do you think that it's uh, the responsibility of uh, local governments to actually ensure that such things are, are in place in terms of the space uh, the uh, space between um, uh, the dwellings um, and also just having access to water, as you said. Unfortunately, it's a very complex issue from who is responsible because the nature of informal settlements is that, that just that they are informal, they are to some extent unregulated. Where possible, all parties need to be involved. Obviously, local municipalities have a, a major role to play, and are, I mean, many of them are doing excellent work. Some of them have, you know, could do a lot more. Now, it's yeah, to try regulate it, to try enforce spacing if possible, to try get the fire department involved. I mean, to, we need to provide resources so that prevention through fire department awareness, prevention, education, access, community engagement, training can be done because either we're going to spend the money before or after, but we are going to spend the money. And so 
then getting communities involved because communities are key. We can't just arrive at a community, do something, expect them to you know be happy with it and follow exactly what we say and move on. I mean, the community is key. They've got to be part of it. It's going to require community engagement, their support, and also they know what the problems are. That's Professor Richard Walls, and he is with the Fire Engineering Research Unit at South Africa Stellenbosch University on the line speaking to Tutungubeni. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African Time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African Perspective. It's 7.42 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Recent estimates suggest that 73 million people in Africa are acutely food insecure. The core problem lies in poverty and inequality, working to tackle the hunger pandemic by feeding children in South Africa for the past 10 years. KFC Ad Hope has taken a partnership approach to ensure that support reaches children in the most effective way. To further discuss this, Samora Mangesi spoke to Sue Wildish, Managing Director of the Lunchbox Fund, a non-profit organization providing a daily meal for orphaned school children in South Africa. It's Hunger Day and it draws attention to the fact that people are hungry. But in reality, every day is Hunger Day for people all over the world. So we have to find a way that we stop wasting our food and we start empowering our people. And, you know, one of the things about our partnership with Ad Hope that is so important is that they understand that education is the way out of poverty and that to really enforce a child's learning to make sure that it's bedded in, the child should not be hungry, otherwise they can't learn. So, you know, they made this commitment to the 190 beneficiaries that they've got that they will support us as we feed children as they learn. So, you know, it's a way to start to work together to do this. I think that it's a really, it's a huge question, a question of so many layers and so many complexities and so much political involvement that all we can do ourselves is to start with our two rand that we donate at the till when we go and we buy ourselves something to eat, you know, our ad hoc two rand. Donate that two rand and know that two rand doesn't mean too much to you at the till, but it's going to translate into a a meal that my organization will serve to a child to fill their tummy so they can learn. Talk to us about the importance of shining light on hunger and malnutrition now more than ever. Well, one of the things that this pandemic has done has ripped the band-aid off and we have seen how many of our people live literally from paycheck to paycheck. So the removal of a paycheck has catastrophic effect on a family and then, of course, the knock-on effects on the economy 
and everybody who is currently trying to make their lives work. So how do we address this? What do we do? What we do is we take a look at where we are and what we can do where we are. Can we put in a garden that will help people to, to get fed? You know, can we take what we have, the bounty we have, and barter it and share it with other people? Can we be kinder to our earth, kinder to our animals, so that our yield is greater? Can we stop poisoning the land on which we live so that we can make it work harder for us? All of these things are things that we have to take into consideration. And Sue, would you say that solving the food insecurity problem requires a coordinated effort by, um, you know, government uh, businesses and, and civil society as a whole. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, everything is what we call resource stacking. It, everybody has to, has to band together to, to get this work done. The South African government does an incredible job in feeding children at school every day. You know, they feed about 13 and a half million children a meal at school every day. Most of those children, that'll be their only meal of the day. But there's more work to be done in terms of feeding kids, in terms of feeding families, and that's where civil society comes in, where we have to assist our government to our government to do. And that's where making partnerships with corporates, like, for instance, you know, with KFC, making partnerships with them to reach their earning capacity, you know, the, the people that purchase from them and turn that reach, that, that leverage, into meals for hungry people is a smart, considered way of moving forward through what is going to be, with a p- pandemic, a long, hungry time for a lot of Talk us through the ways in which KFC, Ad Hope, and the Lunchbox Fund are tackling food insecurity in South Africa specifically. All right, well, this is my favorite subject. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, K- KFC, through the Ad Hope um, initiative, help us to feed almost 4,600 uh, 4, children every single day at school. So, I mean, just think about the scope of that, that for one minute. So the two rand mm. that people are donating is doing that. Um, our meals are either a breakfast or a lunch. They're piping hot at school. They're all nutritionally fortified, so we give the child the best possible chance they can. Um, but it's not just with us that they do it. You know, they, they do it right across the country, and they do it, um, actually, it's 140 nonprofits that they work with. And they implement implementation partners that the Ad Hope um, kind of foundation has gone to and made sure that they're doing the right work that they need to do in the communities, that they're supporting early childhood development centers, that they're forwarding, you know, supporting school feeding schemes. So if you check an organization with as much sort of business savvy as KFC has, and you turn that business savvy into support and share and feeding of people utilizing their resources and their income. And you hire, or you don't hire, but you partner with nonprofit organizations that are in the trenches and on the ground. Very beautiful work gets done because the right work gets done. The most immediate work gets done. The communities are reached regardless of how rural they are or whether they are in the middle of the town. Because you're taking knowledge from different points and pulling it all together to serve one essential need, which is to feed a child every day. That was Sue Wildish, Managing Director of the Lunchbox Fund, a non-profit organization providing a daily meal for orphan school children in South Africa, speaking to Samora Mangesi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Thanks 
tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. It's 7.50 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabi Soluhoku. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, says said 3,000, 300,000 rather, opportunities would be made available for young people to be engaged as assistants at schools as a part of the government's job-led recovery plan. He says government has committed six billion U.S. dollars over the next three years to create jobs through public and social employment. Ramaphosa says that the implementation for the plan will raise growth to around three percent in the next ten years. We are fast-tracking reforms to reduce the cost of doing business and lower barriers to entry. The current timeframes for mining prospecting water and environmental licenses must and will be reduced by at least 50% to facilitate new investment. The Petroleum Resources Development Bill will be finalized to unlock our country's enormous untapped potential in upstream oil and gas reserves. The Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe says its Monetary Policy Committee had agreed to maintain the policy rate at 35% as part of measures to keep speculative borrowing at bay. The central bank also kept the medium-term lending rate to productive sectors at 25% after unveiling a new facility for under-fire firms to forestall a grilling economic crisis that has been compounded by the COVID-19-induced lockdowns. Governor John Manguja maintained a status quo on both the policy rate for overnight accommodation at 35% and the medium-term lending rate for the productive sector lending at 25%. Construction is underway on the final stretch of the highway connecting Nampula City and Kuamba the economic capital of Nyasa province in northern Mozambique. This stretch runs for about 111 kilometers and so far 10 kilometers have been paved. The entire Nampula-Kuamba Highway is 350 kilometers long and work on it started in 2012. The first two stretches between Nampula and Malema were concluded in 2014, leaving 111 kilometers to be paved. The lack of meaningful progress for the Portuguese contractor Gabriel Cuoto forced the government to terminate the contract and open a tender to find another company to complete the job. A former German diplomat to Namibia says that global environmental challenges have reached levels that endanger the foundations of life, which threaten social and economic development as well as peace and security. Heinrich Thalken says that the COVID-19 pandemic has coincided with other global environmental crises. He says at the beginning of this year, global business leaders have again identified environmental and climate risks as the five greatest global risks ahead of terrorists and cyber attacks. The U.S. dollar is trading at 3.813 Nigerian Nara, 1.23 Botswana Bula, 107.63 Kenyan Shilling and 2010 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar cost in Brazil, 5 real 60. In Russia, 78 rubles. India, 73 rupees 25. In China, a dollar is changing hands at 61.72. And in South Africa, it is trading at 16 rand 62. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 85 cents to euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,900 and platinum at $857 per ounce. The price of branch crude oil is at $42.12. 
a barrel. Africa, your favorite channel. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Murray Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za, WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327 or tweet us at Channel Africa 1. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Jabba by WHP featuring Nganyi Sobengu. Have a great day and a great weekend and be safe. The test man on the virus tip, baby. Tell man Nganyi's on the track. Oh, it's crazy up in Cloud City life, baby. You know this. Come on. One, two, three. Everybody. Another nice one, baby.